Well, let's look at the Word of God. Today we're, going to, we're continuing on in Hebrews and we're going to be looking at chapter 9, verses 15 to 28. And really what we're going to see in this passage today is we're going to see four reasons why Jesus needed to die. Okay, four reasons why Jesus needed to die. And I'm just going to give you those reasons very quickly. And then instead of reading the whole passage, um, we're just going to go through it portion by portion and we'll read it as we go along. So let me give you these four reasons that you're going to see come out as we look at this passage today. Why did Jesus need to die? The first one is in order to be able to mediate and establish the new covenant. And so we'll unpack this and we'll explain it all as we go along. The second one is to provide forgiveness for sins. The third, to set God's people free from the consequences of their sins. In other words, what are the consequences of sins? We'll see what that is. It's death and judgment. And fourthly, to make it possible for God's people to receive the eternal inheritance that God has prepared for them. So these are the four reasons that are going to come out in this passage as, as to why the Lord Jesus needed to die. So let's get right into it and let's start in verse 15. We did read this verse last week, uh, but I want to read it again because I want to go a little bit deeper into this verse today and uh, just explain it a bit more. So verse 15 of Hebrews chapter 9 we read there, and so he, that's Jesus, is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the eternal inheritance he has promised since he died to set them free from the violations committed under the first covenant. So when he says here that Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant, we've heard that phrase numerous occasions as we've been going through this letter. What does he mean? Well, it means that he has the task of establishing this covenant between God and people. That's Jesus' task, is to establish this covenant, to make it effectual, to make it operational. But if we think in terms of mediating uh, like a hu in, in human agreements or hu human contracts, when someone mediates a human contract, what a mediator will do is he will go to each party and he will discuss with each party what they are prepared to bring to the table, as it were, so that he can mediate that agreement or that contract. But when we look at the case of the new covenant and we look at the case of the Lord Jesus, he was the one who had to provide everything. I mean, God's people, what did we have to bring to the table? What did we have to give God in order that God could enter into a covenant with us. There was nothing that we could give. And so in mediating the new covenant, not only was the Lord Jesus the go-between between man and God, He was also the one who was going to provide everything that was needed, the basis, we could say, for this covenant to be established upon. So to God, He provided through His blood atonement, for the sins of the people. And so in doing that, what happened is he satisfied God's righteousness and he satisfied God's justice. Do you know that there could never be a covenant between human beings and God unless atonement was made for their sins? And there was nothing that we could give to atone for our sins. And we'll see this more clearly as we go on in, in, in the message today. 
So the Lord Jesus had to provide that. He had to bring to the table what we couldn't provide. And then to us, we, we saw last week that He provided through His blood the cleansing of our conscience. Our consciences from dead works so that we could worship the living God. If our consciences weren't cleansed, we would never be able to draw near to God. How can someone draw near to God when he is guilt-ridden and he is fearful and he just sees God as someone who has a big stick ready to beat him? There's no ways that we can draw near to God if there is something between us and God. You remember the story of Adam and Eve after they sinned? What happened? The moment they sinned, they realized they were naked. And when they heard God moving in the cool of the day through the garden, what did they do? They hid from Him. And do you know that man has been hiding from God ever since? Why? Because in our, the very depths of our beings, we know that we are not in right standing with Him. And so there is this enmity in our minds, even a hostility in our minds towards God. So the Lord Jesus, in order for us to be able to come into this relationship with God, He had to provide cleansing for our consciences. And so we see everything that was needed for us to establish this covenant relationship with God is actually provided by the Lord Jesus, and it's provided through His blood. In other words, the blood of Jesus has become the basis upon which this new covenant is established. And it's His blood that has made it possible for Him to mediate this covenant. In this verse it says, He is the mediator since He died. If He hadn't have died, He would have had no grounds upon which to mediate this covenant. If he had not shed his blood, there would be no new covenant. Okay? Look at verse 16 and 17, and we'll see the writer here driving this point home even further. So in verse 16 and 17, we read this. For where there is a will, he's referring here to a, like a, the will, a last testament, the last will and testament of somebody. The death of the one who made it must be proven for a will takes effect only at death, since it carries no force while the one who made it is alive. So he's using here an analogy of a last will and testament. And he's saying, just as we know, no one who's made a will, that will doesn't come into effect until the one who made it has died. So the Lord Jesus, who is the establisher of the new covenant, the new covenant could not come into effect until he had died. He had to shed his blood. So even though God had made the promises of the new covenant long before Jesus died, they were not in effect until he died. Okay, let's carry on reading verse 18 to 21. He says, so even the first covenant was inaugurated with blood. For when Moses had spoken every command to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people. He's referring back to what Moses did. And he said, this is Moses, said, This is the blood of the covenant that God has commanded you to keep. And both the tabernacle and all the utensils of worship 
he likewise sprinkled with blood. Do you, do you see the phrase here? This is the blood of the covenant. That's what Moses said when he established and inaugurated the old covenant. There had to be shedding of blood for that covenant to come into effect. And he said, this is the blood of the covenant. Doesn't that remind you of what took place on the eve of Jesus' crucifixion? You know, the night when he was betrayed? What did he say? He said, he took the cup and he said, drink this, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. He used exactly the same words that Moses used all those years before. The blood of the covenant, the blood that establishes the covenant. And so just as the old covenant was inaugurated with blood, so was the new covenant. Jesus had to die for there to be a new covenant. Okay, so this is the first reason why the Lord Jesus had to die. was so that he could mediate and establish the new covenant. If he had not died, there would be no covenant. Let's just go back to verse 15 again and ask another question. So verse 15, he is the mediator of a new covenant. And then it says, so that those who are called may receive the eternal inheritance he has promised. So what we see here is, according to this verse, the goal of this new covenant, of which Jesus is the mediator, which has been inaugurated through his blood, is what? What is the goal of it? It is so that we who are called may receive the eternal inheritance. So that Jesus established this covenant for that purpose. So let's ask this question. What is the promised eternal inheritance? What is, the, what is the writer talking about? Well, he's talking about what God promised to Abraham when he made what we know of as the Abrahamic covenant. And remember, we looked at this a few weeks back. And the Lord said to Abraham, he said, to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt. What's that? That's the Nile. To the great river, the river of Euphrates. And so when we think about that, what was the area of, the, of land that God was promising and giving to Abraham? From the Nile to the Euphrates. That poses some questions in our minds. Because if you look even where the nation of Israel is today, does it spread from the Nile to the Euphrates? Not at all. It spreads from the Mediterranean to the Jordan River. A far smaller area than from the Nile to the Euphrates. And so this brings us to a place, you know, to ask, well, what, is, what is going on here? And if you really think about it, at that time to Abraham, in Abraham's mind, just think what Abraham was thinking when God said those words to him, from the Nile to the Euphrates. Do you know that that was the world to Abraham? That was everything that Abraham had ever known. And Abraham had traveled a lot compared to most people. He had been down to Egypt and he had come from an area near the Euphrates. Everything that he knew of the world, remember he didn't have satellite pictures, he didn't have Google, he didn't have airplanes to fly. That is what he knew. And so God was 
in a way, symbolically saying to him, I am giving everything to you. And you know that this is how the Apostle Paul interprets that for us. We can put up Romans 4.13. This is what the Apostle Paul wrote. And remember the New Testament, it's through the New Testament that we're able to understand and interpret the Old Testament. And this is what Paul said. He said, for the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would inherit the world. Do you see how Paul has understood this? Was not fulfilled through the law, that's the old covenant, but through the righteousness that comes by faith, that's the new covenant. So Paul is saying the same thing here as what we're reading in Hebrews chapter 9 verse 15. That it's through the new covenant that we're able to inherit what God promised to Abraham and to his descendants, which is the entire world. So it's more than just a piece of land in the Middle East. God, in speaking to Abraham, was actually promising him the world. And then if we go a step further, if we look in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 5, this is what the writer to Hebrews writes earlier on in the letter. He says, for he, that's God, did not put the world to come about which we are speaking in this letter under the control of angels. Who did he put it under the control of? He put it under the control of Christ and his people. Look at what Peter says, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 13. He says, but according to his promise, what promise? The promise he gave to Abraham. We are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness truly resides. Okay, so the New Testament is giving us insight and understanding into what God was really promising Abraham and his descendants. In the book of James, in chapter 2, verse 5, James says, This is the kingdom which God has prepared for those who love him. And so we begin to understand, it begins to make sense why the writer here would refer to this inheritance as an eternal inheritance. It's so that those who are called might receive the eternal inheritance. And as we go on in the, in the, 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 the letter to Hebrews, we come to chapter 11, we're going to see that somehow, by God's Spirit, Abraham understood this. Because it tells us there that he was looking for a heavenly land, a heavenly country. So Abraham, as he went about living in tents, it says he called himself an alien and a stranger on the earth because he was looking for a heavenly country. Do you realize that this is what the new covenant is all about? It's to bring God's people in to this eternal inheritance. Now just look at it again. It says, so that those who are called may receive the eternal inheritance. I want to focus in on those two little words there, may receive. Because this suggests that if it was not for the new covenant, it would have been impossible for us to receive this eternal inheritance. What was standing between God's people receiving this inheritance, what was stopping them being able to do it? Well, their mortality. How can the mortal inherit the eternal? How can that which is temporary 
inherit that which lasts forever? How can mortal people receive an eternal inheritance? It's impossible. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 50. There it is. This is what Paul said. He said, now this is what I am saying, brothers and sisters. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Do you see what we're standing between God's people and the inheritance of that eternal inheritance? Can you see what we're standing there? You see, to receive the eternal inheritance, those who were called must first receive immortality. And to have immortality, they must first be freed from their sins. Why? Because the consequences of sin is what? Death. So as long as we are held by our sins and we are under the consequence and the penalty of our sins, we cannot inherit what God has prepared, this eternal inheritance. So we have to be set free, first of all, from our sins so that we can be set free from the consequences of our sins so that we can inherit this eternal inheritance. Just look at verse 22. Indeed, according to the law, almost everything was purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. You see, without Jesus dying and shedding his blood, we couldn't be set free from our sins. And if we couldn't be set free from our sins, we couldn't be set free from death. And if we couldn't be set free from death, we could never inherit the eternal inheritance. Do you see what Jesus had to do? Do you see the chain of events that has to take place in order to bring God's people into this which God has prepared for them and promised them? Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And what does that phrase, shedding of blood, mean? What does it refer to? It refers to death. Life is in the blood. And when someone sheds their blood, what happens? They die. The shedding of blood equals death. And so what it's saying here is there is no forgiveness of sins without death. Do you know this is one of the reasons why good works can never bring forgiveness of sins, never save anybody. Just us doing something is not sufficient. Because for there to be forgiveness, there has to be death. The shedding of blood. And so we need to realize this is why no one can earn their way into heaven. No one can earn their way to salvation. Only through death and the shedding of blood can this happen. And what we also need to realize is it's not just the shedding of any blood. Just any blood. And it's not just any death. It has to be the death of someone who has not sinned. Because if he sinned, his death is just for himself. It can't be for you. can't be for me. It has to be someone who has never sinned. In other words, he does not, he's not due the penalty of death himself. And secondly, it has to be someone who can legally represent 
and die in the place of those who have sinned. And you know there's only one person who has or ever will meet those qualifications. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ. He is sinless and He can represent every single one of us. Why? Well, first of all, He's our Creator. The Creator can represent those that He has created. Secondly, He is what the Bible says, calls the second man or the last Adam. He represents every human being that belongs to Him in Christ. Everyone that is in Christ, He represents. And so when Jesus died and shed His blood, that sinless blood, He was fully able to die in our place as our substitute. As He died there, it was as good as us dying. And He paid the price that we deserved to pay. Isn't that incredible? So why did Jesus have to die? He had to die so that we could have total forgiveness for our sins. And isn't that the promise of the new covenant? Remember we looked at it. What is the promise of the new covenant? I will remember their sins no more. Their wickedness, I will remember it no more. That's only possible because of the blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus has made it possible for God to completely set us free from every one of our sins and transgressions. So we can walk absolutely free from any condemnation that those sins would have otherwise resulted in. We can walk free. And that's what Jesus came to do. Absolutely free. Not partially free. Completely free. Totally exonerated. Just as if we had never sinned. That's how total the forgiveness that Jesus' blood has purchased for us is. It's complete. It's total. And as we saw, it is eternal. It's never going to end. Alright? If it wasn't eternal, how could we ever inherit this eternal inheritance? Let's carry on reading. Back in verse 22. Indeed, according to the law, almost everything was purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. So it was necessary for the sketches of the things in heaven, this is referring to the earthly tabernacle that we talked about last week, to be purified with these sacrifices with the blood of bulls and goats. But the heavenly things, the heavenly sanctuary, themselves required better sacrifices than these. It required the blood of Jesus. The blood of bulls and goats was never going to do it. Verse 24, For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with hands, the representation of the true sanctuary, but into heaven itself. And He appears now in God's presence for us. And He did not enter to offer Himself again and again the way the high priest enters the sanctuary year after year with blood that is not His own. For then He would have had to suffer again and again since the foundation of the world. But now He has appeared once for all at the consummation of the ages to put away sin by His sacrifice. Notice that phrase, 
that statement there. To put away sin by His sacrifice. To put away sin by His sacrifice. You see, not only is Jesus the appeaser, but also through His death, He has become the means of appeasement. He didn't just make atonement. Jesus is the atonement. Just as the high priests of the old covenant cleansed the tabernacle with blood as they made atonement for the sins of the people, so Jesus cleansed the heavenly sanctuary with His blood as He secured eternal redemption for us. He appeared in human form at the culmination of the ages at exactly the right time to put away sin by His once-for-all sacrifice for sin. To put it away. In other words, it's been dealt with permanently. If something's been put away, it's done. It's been dealt with. It's over. That's what the sacrifice of Jesus has done. He has put away sin forever. He doesn't, as a result... Like the old covenant priests who continually had to go year after year and take that blood and put it on the mercy seat and come out and go back again and do it again. He doesn't need to do that. One time was sufficient. Why? Because that one time of putting his blood on that mercy seat has dealt with the issue of sin forever. And as a result... He's put an end to the need for all such sacrifices. There's no more a need for sacrifices. That's, that's why there is no more a need for an earthly tabernacle or temple. There's no more need for an altar upon which animals are going to be sacrificed. You know, people from other religions come into a Christian church and they're, where's your altar? You know, they can't understand there's no sacrifices. You know, if you go to places like India, the Hindus are constantly sacrificing. Every other religion, there are sacrifices that need to be made. But here, we don't have an earthly altar. We don't need an earthly tabernacle. We don't need any more sacrifices. Because the one sacrifice that Jesus gave has done the job. It's finished. He cried on the cross just as he died. It's finished. It's finished. It's over. And the, the curtain was torn and the way to God was opened. Isn't this amazing? This, you know what this means to us? There's no more need for an earthly, earthly priesthood to offer sacrifices for sin. No more need for that. There's no more need for us to make restitution for our sins. We don't need to do anything to appease God. Jesus has appeased God. There's no need for us to do penance. We don't have to go on our knees and crawl down whatever road it is in order to try and earn God's favor. Why? Because the blood of Jesus has earned God's favor on our behalf. He's done it for us. There's no need for purgatory. 
Why? Because Jesus, through His blood, has purged our sins. Isn't this wonderful? This is what the gospel is. You see, the need for all of that has been done away with through this one sacrifice, this one offering of the blood of Jesus Christ. And so sufficient is His blood that He's in heaven right now. And He's representing us in heaven at the right hand of God. Do you know what that means to us? It means the way to heaven has been finally and fully opened for all who will come. He's representing us there. The way is open. He's seated there. And you know what the Lord said to His disciples on the night of His betrayal? He said, where I'm going, you will also come. He said, I will come back to take you to be with me where I am. Where I am, you will also be. The way's been opened. And so He's gone as a, as a forerunner. And we're going to follow in due time. Every single one of us, the way has been opened by His blood through His atoning work, through what He has done for us. Isn't that wonderful? The way to God is opened. There is no longer a barrier between us and God. We can come to Him and we can receive forgiveness for our sins. And we can stand before Him absolutely cleansed, absolutely washed, with the hope of eternal life securely in our hearts. Let's go on and look at the last verse, last two verses. Why did Jesus need to die only once to set His people free from their sins? Why did, why was it, why did it just take one death? Look at Hebrews 9, 27 to 28. It says, and just as people are appointed to die once and then to face judgment, so also Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. What is the consequence or penalty of, sin, of death? Sorry, of sin? It's death. How many times? One death. That's all. And then judgment. If we'd been appointed, if the penalty of sin was to die many times, then Jesus would have had to die many times. But we're only appointed to die once. That's the penalty. How many times did Jesus need to die to take away that penalty? Just once. Why do we have this appointment with death? Why will we be judged? What is this all about? We know it's the wages of sin. Jesus died, and because He died, do you know that there's going to be a time when that appointment with death is going to be undone? So we may die because we have an appointment with death, and we will come to the judgment seat of Christ, but because of Jesus, it's going to be very different to the way it would be without Him. For us who turn to Him in repentance and trust solely in Him, do you realize amnesty has been secured? It's been secured for us. I want you to think about this example. Someone commits a terrible crime. 
an arrest warrant is given, is sent out for this person. This person runs and hides. But eventually the long arm of the law catches up with that person. And he's arrested. And he's dragged before the judge in the courts. And then he's sentenced. What is he sentenced to? The punishment that his crime deserves. Do you know that that's every single one of us? We've sinned and the punishment that our crime deserves is death forever. Our body in the grave forever. Separation from God forever. We live our lives. There's an arrest warrant out. We're running. We're hiding. We're trying to escape that penalty. We're trying to get away from death. But you know, for every one of us, ultimately, the long arm of the law catches up. Death catches us. We have that appointment with death. And then comes the judgment. We're brought before the judge. But you know what Jesus has done through the shedding of his blood? Let's just read on. The end of verse 28. To those who eagerly await him, he will appear a second time. Not to bear sin, but to bring salvation. Do you know what's going to happen? Even though we may and we will face that appointment with death unless Jesus comes before. When he comes, he's going to undo what sin has brought upon us. Death is going to be taken away. O oh, death, where is your sting? O oh, grave, where is your victory? That statement will be fulfilled on that day when he comes. He's going to bring salvation. And what is the salvation? It's the resurrection from the dead. It's immortality, in other words, eternal life, and it's the eternal inheritance. That's what he's coming back with. Resurrection, immortality, and the eternal inheritance. And who's he going to give the salvation to? His covenant people who are eagerly awaiting for him. In other words, every single one of us who believe this gospel. Our appointment with death, although it's going to come, is not eternal. It's going to be undone. There's going to be a resurrection from the dead. And those who have believed in Him will receive eternal life. And they will live and reign with Him forever on the new earth that God has prepared. They will receive and inherit the kingdom God has made for them. That's what's going to happen at the judgment. It's not going to be a judgment of condemnation. It's going to be a judgment of inheritance. You see, Jesus has turned this around for us. We deserve to be condemned. But instead of being condemned, we're going to be blessed by God. And forever, forever, we will reign with him. 
Do you believe this? Are you eagerly awaiting the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ? You know, I remember when I was younger, I remember saying, I actually prayed this. Lord, can you just delay your coming a little bit? I, I want to get married. I, I, you know, I, but you know what? It was really because I didn't have an idea, a real idea, of what His coming really meant. And sometimes we want to hold on to this life as if this life is the best life we're ever going to have. But you know that it isn't. What Jesus is coming with is true life. That's true life. And that's how we need to live our lives, in the light of this truth. Because this is what the gospel is all about. We're going to be united with our loved ones once again. We're going to see them once again. We're going to stand before the Lord and see Him face to face. We're going to see our God face to face. We're going to look upon His glory. And we're going to live, the Bible says, shining like the sun forever and ever in the kingdom He's prepared. This is what God has promised to us. And this is the eternal inheritance that this whole new covenant is about bringing us into. Are you eagerly awaiting for the Lord Jesus' return. Do you believe the gospel? Do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you put your faith in Him? Are you trusting in Him? Is He your God and Savior? Is He your deliverer? If He's not, He can be. He can be today. You can make Him yours and you can become his today just by simply putting your faith in him calling on his name and entrusting your life into his hands let's pray and then i'm going to ask ian to come up and just lead us in communion lord we just so thankful today for the fact that you came and that you chose to die for us. You chose to die for our sins. You chose to take the penalty that was due to us. So that we could have eternal life. So that we might not perish. So that we could inherit this inheritance that you've promised. This eternal inheritance. Father, thank you. We did not deserve this. We could not earn it. You chose to give it to us. You chose to make it possible for us. You provided the way. You provided the means. And so we're so thankful today. So thankful for the blood and the body of Jesus Christ by which we are saved. I pray for every person here today, Father, May there not be a single soul amongst us, Father, that does not have this confidence and assurance in you. May there not be a single soul amongst us, Father, who would have a hardened, unbelieving heart that would turn away from the living God. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you, Ian.